Welcome to Agile Adventures, where we explore concepts, tips, and tricks that help your teams achieve their goals and dreams. How's it going, man? There we go. I hear you. Things are going well. It's another good air quality day in California. Well, you know. I guess, I guess, I guess, you know, the summer is uh, winding down. Oh, man. Yeah, slowly but surely. <laughs> you ready to jump into the podcast? Sure, I think we're already recording, so we're good. Because when last we left off, we had two big topics. And the first one, I believe, was how to estimate for risk, right? Yes. Yeah. How to estimate for risk and not keeping everything in your head. Yes. And those two are kind of related. But let's, okay. let's jump on the risk one first. Okay, cool. Let's do it. So normally, the overall view of estimation in Agile is based on the assumption that when you're estimating, what you're not doing is actually building the product. So there's this trade-off. I could do a lot of stuff to get really good at estimating, but it would take a lot of time, and so I would not be building the product, so the product building would take longer. So the underlying premise I'm going to spend as many estimating as possible, but I'm going to estimate more frequently based on historical. What I'll do, you know, imagine you're taking a road from a, I don't know, from a Herzliya to Jerusalem. So you, you calculate how many kilometers it is for the trip, and you divide it into pieces. And you say, hey, all right. The whole trip should take me this long. I know it's going to take this long to um, to a halfway point. And it's, I'm estimating, right? And if I want even more yeah. sure, I just keep more people. And the more I can make it just That is the primary way that we take care of risk. The more you want to actually get more accurate and something is, the more pieces you divide it into. Chat and then based on historical Uh huh. So, in other words, don't spend all the time up front getting good at estimating. Rather spend the time and. Which uh, that's the mistake people run. People make this art out of estimating accurately. But yeah, when you. Uh huh. Do you have a decent connection there? Because you keep uh, going out. All right. 
right? I walked into a uh, a Wi-Fi zone. Some I think my uh, Wi-Fi was picking up, and now I'm just going cellular. So it should be better now, right? Yeah, yeah, much better now. But, but yeah, the key is uh, you just keep increasing the frequency of your estimates. Now, there is one other technique that really works in an agile environment to actually account for risk. And that's in the selection of work, what work you do first. So if you're really in a componentized, object-oriented way, then it really doesn't matter which part of the system you build first. Right? Yeah. So if you want to get rid of risk, then just build the riskiest part first. And as soon as you uh-huh. build it, the risk of it not going well goes away. So <laughs> even that, it's not an estimation technique as much as it is a building technique. Just build the, build the part that's risky first. Uh-huh. In fact, that by that logic, just build the entire app first before estimating it, and then you have no risk, and you know that it will take you no time at all. Well, so if you do that, then you won't be eliminating the risk because you'll carry it as you're building the whole app. So what people do wrong, though, is they don't actually identify exactly what the risk is. If you actually identify specifically the part that's risky, then you should only have to build that part in order to get rid of the risk. What we do, what we do too often is we make our risk so broad, right? That if it's so broad, you really can't do anything about it. Uh huh. So you, you got to get specific. So, you know, the risk isn't the error handling, right? The risk has got to be more specific. It's got to be, you know, the how do I collect and determine determine what error messages I'm going to actually broadcast and send it to the, the right component um, in a way that's not too labor-intensive. And the more specific you get, the smaller the, the, the amount of work you'll have to do to get rid of it. What do you think about that? No, I think there's, you know... There's some questions, obviously, that come to mind, but I think in general, it, it sounds like a good, good approach. Uh, it, basically, get the get the tough stuff out of the way so that you as as quickly as possible, so you can so you can you can estimate things better in the long run, meaning sooner. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, so it it um so there's two two things. One is, yeah, just uh, well, really, I I from what you said, I had three questions. 
uh-huh. but, but two, of the, two of them are relevant and one of them's not. <laughs> so so I'll, I'll ask the relevant ones first. Um, if you could get all the risk out done up front before estimating, it seems to me like there's not a lot of, you, you must have a pretty controlled amount of risk. I'm going to say we, we always do. You mean, you're saying that, that people think things are risky, but really there's only usually one or two things that are risky, and the rest of it is stuff you've done a billion times. Exactly. But, again, if you don't get specific about what the risk is... Okay, so after the technical difficulties and whatnot, uh, yeah, so yeah, we so yeah, where were we? Yeah, so we were talking about the subject of estimating risk, and you know, just a, a small recap what we talked about was and the underlying premise for agile and estimation is that you don't spend time estimating because the time that you spend estimating you could have actually spent building the product. So we want to avoid putting too much effort into estimating. So in order to do that, what we do is we use simple estimation techniques, but you estimate several times and you use the historical data from building things to extrapolate how much time it will take to build the rest of it. So then we got on the subject of, well, if you're using that technique, then what you should do if you really want more accurate estimate estimations is one, estimate more frequently so that you can make course adjustments more, more often. But then two, if you estimate the riskiest parts first, then the rest of your estimates are going to be more accurate. And then we discuss, hey, with that notion, why wouldn't you just estimate, you know, build the whole thing, and then you know exactly how long it takes. And I said, hey, that, it's not as predictive. But what you can do is get very specific with your estimates and very specific with the risk. Most often, there's only a small portion of your system that's risky, but the rest of it has been done before and done in different ways. And you can look it up and find answers for it. And so the more accurate you can get with your estimates, the better off you are. So that's kind of where we left off. Is that a good summary? Yeah. Um, Okay, yeah. Um... So what generally is, so I'm saying, so I'm guessing that when you say that the, there's a small amount of the riskiest uh, parts. So um, I'm assuming that those will, the riskiest parts will be somewhere in the business logic, usually speaking. It it really does depend. Often, um, you don't know, you've never worked with a couple different components and you don't know how they'll work together. 
like I remember a couple of weeks ago we were talking about uh, incorporating Rabbit in Q. Yes. And we never actually use it in our application before, right? So actually integrating that with our existing applications would be a risk, um, and that could be a big deal. It's not business logic. So it, it's overall, it's just going to depend, right? Oh, it's things that you haven't done before. Right. Things that, yeah, that's what we're talking about. Okay. Because yeah, overall, you know, the definition of risk really boils down to uncertainty. And I'm uncertain about things that I haven't done before. Uh-huh. I mean, some things are just, um, some things are just inherently risky, regardless of how many times you've done them, no? There are some things that do have a heavier um, risk profile. Um, for instance, interfaces are inherently more risky than the internal component. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, the risk profile of an interface that you've done before might still be lower than an internal component that you have not done before. So you still have to make kind of a judgment call on where the biggest risk is. Uh -huh. I, I personally, and you're a better coder than I I was <laughs> when I was coding heavily. I personally, um, threading was always harder for me and trying to keep track of everything. So for me, like threading is, is always going to have a, a, a heavier risk profile than other pieces. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like threading is inherently more risky, you know? Like you just open... Say so you just open yourself up to a bunch more risks. So that's like the, like um, you have uh, increased chance of race conditions. You have all sorts of like various objective risks that, I mean, maybe like somebody who does threading all day, like, you know, they're, they're basically working on processors and like that's their job. Like, right. Maybe for them, like, they get better at estimating it. But to me, it just seems highly unlikely that, like, it, like that it's ever, like, yes, uh, you know, a single, uh, you know, like, you know, uh, script that you run is ever going to be more risky than, like, having to deal with multiple threads. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. Um, but yeah, I do want to give leeway to the, the concept of whatever you're used to doing is going to be inherently less risky and, um, whatever you aren't used to doing, <laughs> you're unfamiliar with, is going to be more risky. Yeah. I've met this, I've met to like, I've yet to, I feel like with the, with like, yeah, especially with threading, like you're, 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 you're definitely go, you know, like you're definitely going to find, uh, you know, it's also like much harder to debug. Yeah. So you're definitely going to exactly. find like a race condition in, in production. It's just a matter of when. <laughs> I tend to agree. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, yeah, someone who's doing it every day, they're so much better at it than I am. <laughs> um, they know what to look for. So for me, for threading, I had to sit down. You now I'm a big proponent of test-driven development. I would have to sit down and really think about what tests I was going to run. And it would take a long time to do it. Um, you whereas someone does this every day. I mean, unless... <laughs> Unless you like really like are like a DevOps guy, it's like really hard to do test and development on stuff like that. Even oh, it's lot. extremely hard. Yeah, because uh, most of it you're gonna find out when you have like 120 concurrent users or like a thousand concurrent users, and you have some like funky race condition you put in there that's gonna only occur once in a blue moon. Yeah, but I mean, but again, I know a guy who does this for a living, you know, day in and day out, and he actually—it's coming kind of the reason I brought threading up. He actually created a um, an output display that looked at for each variable in each thread what the value should be at any given time, and he displays that he has like a separate monitor <laughs> that he uh. He puts it up on that monitor, and while he's coding and going through the actions, he can actually look and see. All right, so here's what the uh, what is currently the value in each one of these threads, and here's what I think it should be. And then he uses it and debugs everything really easily. <laughs> okay, cool. But yeah, the uh, but again, the main point from from a estimation perspective i'm with you i think certain elements are inherently more risky um and they're gonna take longer to do harder more effort to put into it and there's also this uh, additional concept that people sometimes do where they look at they kind of use like a, a pert method that's been done for projects and when i say pert for projects like for project management, a lot of times what people have done is they've looked at a three-point estimate. So they said, hey, um, here's something that is most likely going to take this amount of uh, effort to do. But if I'm working on this, and I think the risk profile is higher, then maybe I actually multiply the effort times a factor of 1.3 so i increase the uh my pie for some reason has been a favorite number of people use but i increase the uh amount of effort because i think this part is more risky right and maybe this part i think is easy so i had an effort of uh you know of one but i multiply it times 0.7 to decrease the risk tolerance of it um you know so you can yeah. play tricks like that Personally, I, I think that doing all that extra work violates the underlying principle in Agile of don't spend time estimating. Like the more things you add to it, it makes it more complicated to get more accurate. The more time you're spending not coding. So I tend to just estimate it, assuming that I'm going to be wrong. And when I do my further estimates in the future, basing it on historically here's what it took then it'll come out in the wash 
So that, that, work, that was that was question number two. You, you sort of touched on it there. So that was, yeah, I, I, until now we do, it's in question number one. Question number two is this. Yeah, it was like, yeah, this thing about estimate often and don't, don't do such a good job. Like, yeah, so the thing is, is that it's easy to say that, but I, I find that people don't like being wrong. Yes. They have a they have like a thing against being wrong. Like me, I'm wrong all the time, you know, and I'm just like I live with it, you know. But uh other people have not have not been able to 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 accept their fallibility in life. And as such, like I feel like it seems like unlikely that um that people like I feel like people will spend like the extra time like trying to estimate it in order to like sort of like pad their their chances of being right. Yeah, and I, I don't think that's the intent um, of, of Agile and estimation in general. Um, I'm actually working with a company now, a client now, that's going through that. And initially they wanted an estimate but they kept being wrong so much on the estimate and the person who was using it to make decisions and set expectations with other people, he was, he was wrong because they were giving him the wrong estimation. And so what he ended up doing is going back to the teams and saying, Hey, you need to tell me, but you can definitely commit to what can you definitely do? And when you invoke that kind of culture, just what you just said happens. Well, now, because I, I need to give this definite commitment, instead of telling you what I think is going to happen, I start what we call sandbagging. And I give you a lower estimate so I can definitely make sure I hit whatever I committed to. And I found that engineers aren't really good at that, nor should they be. Like you're adding, and every time you ask them to do this, and that extra thought process takes them away from building better code. I think oh, that I do. All, I do that all the time. Yeah, I say I always like you know, I'm always like, okay, this will take me five minutes. Okay, say it will take me a day. <laughs> <laughs> see, I, I I don't want to put that burden on the engineers who are building it. I want them to be experts at building the software and not be experts at politics of the organization. I think management should be good at that. So I always trying to encourage a culture where, hey, you tell me what you think is the truth um, so we don't have to play games with each other. If you don't hit it accurately, it was an estimate. You know, figure out, uh, you know, figure out what you did wrong in estimating it so you learn from the future to get better at it. But I'm not going to beat you up about it because that'll take you away from getting better at your craft. Instead, management should adjust. You took their information as a management judgment on how much padding they want to add so that they can set expectations for other people. Putting that burden on the engineer is just going to make the engineer less efficient. Okay, so you, you're claiming, you're making a truth claim here. You're claiming that I'm wrong that people are 
um, don't like being wrong, but rather you're, you're saying that people are afraid of being wrong. I think people are afraid of being wrong. Yes. Uh-huh. I, I think a lot, of, a lot of it is caused by the reactions that management actually presents when you are wrong. I'll, I'll give okay, a I'm willing, example. I, I'm willing to, to meet you halfway. I'm, <laughs> I'm willing to say that, yeah, if if it was made like uh, insignificant, if, if people are people don't like being wrong about things that matter. If it was made made like, listen, like this is like you know, just it doesn't matter if you're wrong, right? Then people would not make. Uh, then yeah, maybe you're right. Uh, yeah, I think I think like no, I think it's an ego thing for a lot of people though. Like I think like it's uh, just the reality is like yeah, like oh you said you're no one likes oh you said you're gonna do this in a day why did it take you three days? Well, see, I, yeah, I think that's punishment. Well, I, I mean they're not. I mean, technically, a punishment is like okay, I'm gonna dock you pay or I'm gonna make you wear a dunce cap or I'm gonna make you walk the plank. Like just pointing out, like, well, why do you think it took you three days when you said it would take you one day? That's not really a punishment, though. Like, well, so if I have a good crew, like, all right, so I work with you. I don't need to tell you or point out that you said it was going to take one day and it took three. One, I mean, once you realize it took three, you would beat yourself up and you would figure out how to adjust your estimate. And you, you tell me before I needed to tell you, <laughs> right? <laughs> that was that was before my New Year's resolution. <laughs> I knew you were gonna bring that up. <laughs> that was that's the old me. The new <laughs> one doesn't beat himself up anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but, but again, I, I think that what what you described, um, as far as you know blocking their pay and stuff like that. Those are harsher punishments. But I think just bring it, even just bringing it up, bringing up the obvious to most people is annoying. It, it, well, annoying, okay. yes. But like, listen, like <laughs> I find a lot of people annoying, but I wouldn't call them a punishment. <laughs> <laughs> You're just nicer than me. I call them a punishment. <laughs> but uh, like, again, I'm in this boat too. It's, it's like sometimes, sometimes my kids come and they're like, hey, like, you know, like, want to see this thing I did in school? And I'm just like, God, why me? What have I done? <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but I don't know if that's a fit. That's like really a punishment per se. But, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe I should, maybe I should repent. <laughs> No, I, again, I think something that I, I've been, I've had one of those days where, oh, let me bring up some real life. My, my wife was uh, trying to get my, my daughter set for picture day. And they were running late. She, uh, she, they get out of the car. My wife puts her phone on the car. On, on the roof and you know she proceeds to doctor my daughter up get her hair all straight for picture day and she was in such a rush that she forgot to get grab her phone and she drove off so of course she broke her phone 
um, and lost it. But uh, if I bring up the fact that, wow, you, you put your phone on top of the car, that probably wasn't the smartest thing to do. After she already replaced the phone and spent another $1,000 <laughs> for the smartphone, it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of punishment. Like At that point, after she spent $1,000, my wife already knew that wasn't the greatest move to make. <laughs> Me pointing it out does not make things better. Um, and I think that we as human beings, we follow certain patterns and we do point out things like that because we feel like doing it because there was a pattern that was done to us when it's not helpful, right? Yeah, yeah. Helpful, it's not. Yeah, it's really not helpful. I mean, she's a smart cookie. She she knew what's wrong. She paid $1,000 and going her way, right? Um, The... The... Again, I, I think that the environment that you want to create with engineers is that they hone their craft, figure out better ways of doing things, and they tell you the truth. And anytime you're pointing out stuff that they could figure out on their own, for them, it's like punishment. Like having this, you know, if they care about their craft, they were going to go figure out why their estimate was off. You pointing out, hey, you know your estimate was off, right? <laughs> it's just putting salt on the wound. It's, it's punishment. And if I don't like it enough, I'll, what I'll do is not figure out how to make a better estimate. Because, again, the estimate I gave you, if I was doing my best before, having that salt in the wound piece is going to make me better. If I want to avoid your comment, um, what I'll do is sandbag as a default. And I don't want that at all. I'd rather you give me your best effort. And if it's your best effort is off, you would investigate what about it was off and then learn from it. So it becomes a personal learning journey. And it's not influenced by the fact that I'm going to point it out and annoy you. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, it could be that. It could be that. Uh, could be that you know certain events led it led me to to not. I mean, I think you're overestimating the or underestimating, I guess, the level of of zen I I have now. As far, <laughs> as far as like oh yeah you said it was going to be a day and it took a week like oh man what do you do and i was like okay yeah i guess it took longer you know <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah i think you I, I i was i've i've been able to to master that so like i can't but i i can see myself like maybe like a few months ago yeah going through that whole beating myself up and trying to figure out why it took me longer. Yeah. Well, again, if, if I firmly believe that if I'm using the concept of yesterday's weather, which basically means that I am looking at the rate of development 
that I've done historically in order to forecast here's what's going to happen in the future. Um, this stuff will come out in the wash. I'll, as soon as I do a piece of it, right, I'll, I'll be able to re-estimate. You know, so, you know, and just to, to make this really clear, let's say that I'm risk averse. So the component I'm working on, I divide it up into 10 roughly equal sized pieces. I said that each piece was going to take about a five to do, and the first one took an eight to do. Well, okay, now I know my. So, so before I get to the to the to the third question, I just the the yesterday's weather thing. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I agree with it. I just don't think anyone ever does it. Oh, people do it. Um, I work. I worked with many people, many clients that actually do it. The, I feel like everybody always puts the button, which is like the, the yeah, well, it took me this long, but that's because, and then they have something, and they say, this is different, <coughs> because why? And like, they shouldn't, but here's, <coughs> one second. Oh, no worries. But, you know, why? <coughs> let me throw this out. Um this is where the culture of the team makes a big difference. So I've been on teams where we weren't all equal. And when I say we weren't all equal, if you have a person who's kind of in charge on the team and, and they don't see that everyone's equal, then when they, they give an estimate, it's off. They say, hey, this, you know, I'll make it up later on. No one can call BS on them and say, no, <laughs> that's, that's probably not the real reason. And it's going to happen again. So estimate this way. So if, if you don't have the proper power dynamics, um, we don't, we're not equal as a culture, as a team, then you do run into that, right? And if you don't have a strong enough scrum master, right? Because they should be the last line of defense. It should be the team. But the scrum master should definitely be the last line of defense and call people out. No, BS, we're using yesterday's weather. You know, you don't get to actually say, you're just going to magically get faster. <laughs> right? We're estimating based on the rate that you used before. Yeah, but it, it at some point it becomes semantics because it's like, no, it didn't take me that long to do that. It's just I didn't realize that there was this other element which doesn't apply here. See, that, that's why we use that yesterday's weather because I don't want to get into the semantics and banter back and forth. I want to use the numbers, right? Yeah, yeah, but oh. I'm saying if, if, yeah, it's good to call BS on it, but like eventually it's like, okay, yeah, but like, you know, like, um, Back then, we had this thing. Yeah. Uh, well, you know. So, but the way I'm going to end the argument is I'm going to say, hey, you know what? What you're saying may be true. Let's create a hypothesis. If what you're saying is true, then this next piece that we're going to put into the sprint that um, we originally said was a five, that I'm saying is an eight now, will really come out as a five or possibly even a three, 
because you're right. We didn't take into account this learning and all, all that stuff. So right now we're going to put it in in the rule in agile and estimation is when there's any dispute, you always go for the higher number rather than argue. So right now we're going to put it in as an eight. But if you, if you actually do it and it turns out that it was a three, then we'll change all the rest of them and the backlog to threes. Well, wouldn't, you like have you, done, wouldn't you have done that anyways because yesterday's weather? Well, again, the data we have right now is that it's an eight. So I changed them all to eights. Yeah. So if, <laughs> if, if, if you were to do that, though, wouldn't you? Would it, I'd say, let's say you use yesterday's weather, right? Doesn't that, have, yes. doesn't that mean you have to update everything if yep. you find out that? That's correct. So, yeah, we would we would have used the process. And basically, what I'm doing it in a nice way is saying, understand your feelings, but we're using the darn process. <laughs> you got to have a strong enough culture in the team to say, despite everyone's individual feelings, use the process. <laughs> It'll come out in a wash. Just use the process. <laughs> yes. But, but my feelings. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, again, the whole foundations, especially of Scrum, is empirical process control of using what actually happened to predict what's going to happen in the future. And we should be evidence-based and not relying on feelings. And, and that's tough for a lot of teams, right? That's why this whole estimation uh, category gets a little, uh, it gets passionate and emotional. You're supposed to take that stuff out in the agile environment, right? Okay, so Sessions are the way to the dark side of the force. So yeah, I was wondering this. This thing is is um, is it, this is the third question that wasn't relevant, but but I think is just an interesting. So uh. Yeah, there is this strange relationship between agile and object-oriented programming. Yes. Like, uh, like I, I don't. It doesn't seem to me like they're like one is this like, like it seems like you could use agile in other forms of programming. You can. But yet, yeah, there seems to be an, an assumption, some sort of assumption that you that the optimal way to do it is object-oriented programming. So I wouldn't say optimal, but I will say that object-oriented programming became the genesis for Agile. So if it wasn't for object-oriented programming concepts, Agile would never have come to be. And let me explain a little bit about why. This doesn't make a little bit more sense. Previously, all projects ran off of dependencies. It's like, hey, you know what? You, you have to do your component before I can do my component. And if we don't actually do the components in this order and you don't finish your thing on time, then the whole thing is going to be late. And what that created was this environment where we were powerless to actually make up time, get back on schedule. And object orientation breaks that because an object orientation, because I'm programming toward a common interface, um, because I'm specifying the API up front, 
and I'm programming to that rather than waiting for your part to finish before mine. Um, but because if I know how the system works, I can develop my tests at the same time or even before you're, you start programming, right? Once we, those principles came into play, well, now we can do concurrent development and dependencies don't matter. Before, before I'm going into programming, dependencies mattered so much that all we did was manage dependencies. But then when object orientation came up, now we're in an environment where de dependencies can be managed in such a way that they no longer exist. I can have an entire project going on that has no dependencies. And that, that was huge, right? So it was so revolutionary that now object orientation is associated with Agile just for being able to manage dependencies. That makes sense? Yeah, yeah. Um... And it's huge. <laughs> I still have talks with people and I had a talk with someone a couple days ago who was, he was asking me advice on how to manage dependencies and a couple that he had on, on his project. And, and when I say manage dependencies, like he meant like how to organize the project around it. And you know, I'm trying to explain to him, you don't have to have that dependencies, get rid of it. <laughs> yeah, but even, even in like object oriented programming, like, yeah, there's seldom, seldom is it done where there's no dependencies. That's only because we, we accept things that don't make sense, right? Again, I can change my behavior and think about define it API up front. And then, then you're coding to the API and not waiting on my code, right? We can change our behavior, but we don't. <laughs> but you can, and you'd be better off if you did. Yeah, but I'm saying, like, I don't know, this reminds me of a conversation I had with you a while back, where there's, like, a certain developer who I was like, I don't know, I keep making these, keep telling him to do it one way, and he does it, like, the other way, like, he does it, and, like, you're like, yeah, like, it takes, like, 10 years to get good at, like, solid programming, uh, you know, things, like, you know, so try to, like, you know, limit it to, like, you know what you could expect from the guy. It's where I need to remind you that no names to protect the innocent. Yes, and the guilty. <laughs> I mean, we all know who we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Again, I think that. But if you so, here's the deal: if you organize your project around it, that person will never learn, and there's no incentive. So you'll be stuck in that way forever, right? You're, you're, we're much better off if we organize and manage our projects in a way where those type things are eliminated. And so this person has to either learn to, to do it our way, which is more efficient, or they feel so bad and uncomfortable that they quit. 
what our project team did was rearrange the whole project around that bad behavior, which causes us all to be less efficient. And you just get less done that way. That's, that's not the way I want to go. What do you think? And we did. We actually did it that way. <laughs> we accepted the inefficiency. Yeah, but like, what was the other choice? <laughs> like, the other choice. Yeah, the other choice hey. was like, you know, I mean, you know, you it's good, but you have deadlines and you have, you know, like, I don't know if I could have argued, like, you know, I wouldn't like, yeah, it'd be great if we just like didn't accept any pull requests that, you know, weren't, uh, weren't the way we wanted it. But like, yeah, there are deadlines, there are things that have to get done, like, you know, like there'd be, oh, you like, you'd go back to like, you know, or you go back to like me doing everything. See, the, the deal is, and it's going to sound funny, people aren't used to this, and it's a big deal, so viewers, viewers, listeners, lean in your chairs right now, deadlines are deadlines causes bad behavior we accept lower productivity we accept not training people to do things the right way because of deadlines when really what should happen is that the team should be estimating what it takes to do what they need to do and we should finish when we finish and management should set the proper expectations for stakeholders based on what the team has done in the past. And, and don't let deadlines influence it. Because in the end, yeah, we, we made some compromises. We didn't teach this person the right way. We accepted some inefficiencies to meet the deadline, right? But now we operated slower and we didn't actually prepare things for the future in the most efficient way. We incurred technical debt and everything is going to be slower from, from now on because we accepted those inefficiencies. And now we got to deal with it. And now the business is going to get less value because of it. I think we should have done it the other way. I mean, as a developer, that sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know if like I don't know if like I was like investing money in a company if I would think that sounds great. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually would because overall, I'm gonna get more output. I, let me let me make an analogy. So my wife and I were discussing the whole deal around electric vehicle charging, and I don't know if you know this, but for most batteries for electric vehicles it takes between 15 and 17 minutes to get the using a fast charger to go from zero to 50 percent full right um, 15 minutes okay well in america we're trying to build in the infrastructure for electric vehicle charging and people want to fill up the whole battery 
which to fill up the whole battery may take an hour. And they wouldn't have planned their trips around it. Right. Second, you just said 15 minutes is, is 50%, no? Exactly. But the more full your battery is, the slower the charging takes place. Mm. So if it's 80% full, and I don't know if you've ever done this, um, but like when, no. when your battery is like 95% full, it may take like another 20 minutes for that last 5% <laughs> to get filled up. So, but if we know from the data that you can go from zero to 50% in 15 minutes, then we should be planning out all the infrastructure around trying to get 50% full with the battery. So you just space out, you know, 50% full for most electric car batteries is like 100 miles or so. Um, 160 kilometers. So just space out your infrastructure for, you know, 155 kilometers. <laughs> People go there for another 15 minutes and fill up, right? So you can make long distance, long distance trips and everything's fine. But that's not what we're doing. We're, we're planning around people's bad behavior because people want to get 100% full when they fill up. It makes them feel better. <laughs> um, that takes longer. And because it takes longer, we aren't doing anything. Okay, one second, one second. Let's, let, let, let's be fair. People are not filling up at zero. True. Um, which means that there'd be less risk of them running out. So you, that kind of double downs on the fact that you should space out um, your infrastructure to be 160 yeah. kilometers apart. You don't have to do less. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Okay, but I and, mean that, that's a lot of infrastructure. No, but that's more infrastructure. Yeah, but it's it's that's what's necessary to give people the comfort. Because right now in America, we aren't switching to electric cars because there's not enough infrastructure for charging. Well, we also don't really have the science down, like you know. We got it down. I I have two electric cars, right? Yeah, but like. Um, it, yeah, you have electric cars, but like, but like in reality, like your carbon pr- footprint went up by getting the electric cars. Yeah, we, we won't discuss that part. <laughs> that part's out of scope. Oh, okay, but, fine, but, whatever. I'm just saying, like, you know, we, until until we have that, we don't have the science down. <laughs> but you know, my point in all this is that um, because we've accepted the bad behavior that. You know, people want to actually get their battery completely filled up and they want to do it quickly. And we don't have the science to actually fill the entire battery up in 15 minutes. We just aren't tackling the whole recharging your, your car in public areas at all. Which we aren't even building the infrastructure. Well, and of course, we will never meet our climate goals because of that. Like, if you allow bad behavior, it has all these downstream effects. And most, the biggest effect is analysis paralysis, where it's you really, don't. It's really, it's, it's really a marketing thing. It's really a matter of, we should be telling people that it's 50, that at 50, at like 60 or 75% that it's full. And that's it. Exactly. Here, the same way for project teams. We should be telling project team members 
hey, here's the way we estimate. Here's the here's how Scrum works. Here's how you use yesterday's weather. Do what you need to do by following the process, and that's what we're gonna do. <laughs> we're not gonna accommodate your bad behavior. <laughs> Just don't don't accommodate it. And and it's tough. These are these are difficult discussions to actually go to a developer and say, look, you know, we know that you should break down your uh, the the story into scenarios. Do a scenario, and then you know, if you broke it broken down to equal sizes, the rest of the scenarios you're working on are going to be about the same size because you broke it down that way. Estimate it accordingly. We know that's more efficient. It's worked. <laughs> and we should just do it. Right? And it, this is where, like, using the Agile, it takes a lot of discipline. Because people don't want to do what we know makes sense. People want to do what they feel passionate about. And we let that get into the way. What do you think? These are hard truths, right? Yeah, I just don't know if they feel passionate about it or just, that's just, you know, to them it looks like the easiest way from point A to point B in there, you know. Like, I think you you ascribe to developers things that only only a small subset of developers have. Like, yeah, I mean, I can relate to it, but I just don't think that, like, like you know, like, uh, like, I think a lot of people, when I give them an assignment to do something, they just, yeah, they're just, if the, if the code runs and it works, they feel they've done their job. That's it. Yeah. And, and, and that's a shame. We, I think we have a, we need to make a commitment to changing that mentality. Right. If you're in agile, your job isn't just to run the code. Your job is to build it in a way. And we've talked about this in previous broadcasts, where since you know that 60% of the cost is on operations and maintenance, you got to build it in a way that makes it easier to maintain and operate. It's not just building it. And, and part of your job is to make sure that you are estimating properly, right? Part of your job is making sure that you have appropriate test coverage, right? And you've updated the uh, your DevOps infrastructure so that you've included the appropriate amount of automated tests to make building it in the future easier. Like, oh, we just gotta make set expectations that all these things are part of the job. And it can't just be build it and throw it over the fence anymore. Because it's, it's costly. Right? Uh, okay. Again, if you look at the statistics of, um, you know, there's a bunch of agencies, including the, uh, the uh, standards group that does the chaos report. And they look every year at how many, um, what percentage of projects are successful in terms of delivering what they need to deliver within this, you know, delivering the scope within the uh, budget and within the schedule that we uh, 
we plan for, those numbers aren't getting better because we keep letting people not do what they're supposed to do. <laughs> we just got to set better expectations. Uh-huh. And it's tough, you know. I, I don't want to minimize it because these are tough conversations to have. Here, 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 here's one of these, 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 this is an open question for me, uh, which is like, so I've seen all these statistics about, about, about like, yeah, like agile workflow and all these things. And, um, and I've seen that there's, they, they, they show a certain level of improvement. But uh, first of all, we're talking about like the subset of, of teams that um, actually can like um, employ agile in, in the way that you're referring to versus the subset of teams that claim to do agile. I think we both know that there's a, there's a, there's a tremendous discrepancy. Yes, I agree. So, like, so it's 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 hard to know how to what to how to, like what to do with those statistics because like yeah the, I mean it seems they're all over the place which is sort of what you'd expect. <laughs> uh, there does seem to be some form of improvement about people who accept like a strict agile thing, but the question is, like, a team with that level of discipline. Uh, it could be just any any system that would force them to think about their workflow uh, would give them improvement. You've hit on something that is very true. And I use it. When I say I use it, let me explain a little bit more. I tell my clients or potential clients about my history. And my history is for most organizations, I've been able to at least increase their productivity within a year um, by 50%. And, you know, it's, it's true. I have been able to do that. In fact, in most cases, it's much more than that. I've doubled the productivity in a year. And how do I do it? Well, I focus on obstacle management, right? And we define obstacles as those things that are either stopping the team from accomplishing what they need to, or slowing them down from making improvements. And logically, if you actually focus on what are the things that are stopping me or slowing me down, and you get rid of those and solve them, the natural consequence is you're gonna speed up. Right. And yeah. so, yeah, that seems reasonable. <laughs> but I mean, it, and what you're saying it sounds really reasonable too. It's, uh, some of the same lens, right? The teams that are making improvements, yeah, if they, if they could discipline themselves to just look at how to make things better and then make things better, of course they're going to get better, right? And that's what you want, though, because most teams don't do that, <laughs> right? Is that so so I, don't, I don't think. So. I'll tell oh, you. I'll tell you, like what really like brought this point home to me is like I started like 
this whole thing of like story points versus time estimates. Right. And I started getting going like into the weeds and the research of like, well, like, and like the, you know, the evidence that story points help. And I was just like, no, so that's not really what it was. Like, it doesn't seem to me like, it seems to me like if, if anything, like the fact that they had a, that they overly complicated their system to use story points and not do what the natural thing is, which was to say, okay, I'll probably be done by Wednesday is probably, to me, it seemed like that was a much more likely explanation to like why it is that they, uh, that, that like they, that they got better at estimating than, uh, than, you know, any of the other reasons given for story points. So I'll tell you, I, I talked to the guys that made story points, right? Yeah. Um, and the guys, the guys that made it famous, Ron Jeffries and Chet Hendrickson, they wrote a book about it. And yeah. they basically said, as soon as they published the book and they saw that the effect it was having, they, they apologized to everyone and then rec quickly recommended that no one use it. <laughs> um, yeah. that now what they do is they say, hey, just make your stories small, you know, one or two days long. And then you can just like count the stories and you get rid of all this other administrative overhead and everything just by counting. They're yeah, like this, well. this whole argument with the Fibonacci numbers was just like, I get that computer programmers have a strange infatuation with Fibonacci, but, <laughs> <laughs> but like, it, just, it just seemed to me much less likely that that's what was doing it. it and you're, you're absolutely right. It's, story points are not what's making things better for estimating, right? The, the whole point of story points was just we recognize that management had this concept of trying to hold people quote unquote accountable for the estimates. And so if we can obfuscate the estimates, don't use hours and days so that management wouldn't come back and say, all right, you say you're going to be done with this in five hours. Well, it's four hours and 45 minutes and it doesn't look like it's done. What the heck's going on? Right. But yeah. <laughs> that was the point of, Story points was to get rid of that ability for management. So then you would just leave the guy, people alone, let them work. Um, <laughs> but it doesn't automatically make things better, right? You're right. The retrospective of people saying, hey, let's actually estimate what we thought. And when we're off, maybe we're using the wrong criteria to create the estimate. Maybe in this situation, we use some different criteria. Let's learn from it, right? That's what makes um, teams better. Multiple yeah, techniques work. Yeah. Uh huh. So. So basically, yeah. basically, we could sum. So you're saying we basically could sum up agile as uh, agile because common sense is not so common. <laughs> There's this great video that was made by Ken Schwaber, um, one of the uh, inventors, one of the co-creators of Scrum. And in the Google talk, in the first five minutes, he talks about how, hey, people credit me with inventing Scrum. I've got to admit to you all, we didn't invent it. That basically we took a, we took a bunch of practices 
that people were using that were successful and we just put them together, right? And anyone, and people have been using these practices before Scrum came about and they'll be using these practices long after Scrum's gone, right? It's, it's not Scrum that makes things better, right? These are tried and true practices that we didn't invent that make things better. And yeah, anything that has been proven and worked before that we see is really popular, it tends to look like common sense if you're in that domain, <laughs> right? Because yeah, yeah. it is common, <laughs> right? <clears throat> then that's what this stuff is, right? It's a collection of common practices that have been tried utilized and recognized um, as working and superior to other practices. So we should use more of it. So yeah, you're absolutely right. You can't sum it up that way. I say, I say that and then I argue with you on every point of agile. So obviously. <laughs> <laughs> obviously it's not that common, right? Yeah, exactly. But, but here's the thing, like they put together a bunch of practices that have commonly been refuted to work, but different people in different areas recognize different best practices. So it's not all practices aren't common for everybody. And that's the value that Agile and Scrum as, you know, as frameworks bring to the table. Yeah. In this region, this wasn't popular, and yeah, and yeah, over here in Silicon Valley, you can't find an automated tester um, available on the market. And when you do find one, because test driven development and automated development is so popular, you pay whatever price to get them, and you keep them forever. You know, in our project, we, I couldn't pay people enough to test. <laughs> couldn't pay them enough to actually look into test automation, like. Even though it's a common practice everywhere, you know, over here, it wasn't with our team, right? <laughs> I'm telling you, I didn't well, believe it. Every, every, almost every company I spoke to, they're like, yeah, we really know we should test, but yeah, we don't really test so much. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of our things are broken, right? <laughs> uh huh, yeah. Everybody seemed cool with having me test, though. <laughs> exactly. But again, it's, I think in our conversation today, you've tried to separate um, kind of the emotional part that people have from like the logical part. And I've all, I kept intertwining them. <laughs> and because honestly, I believe that most people, even though they say they're being logical, they're actually making decisions based on emotion, based on passion. If, if you're not well, using, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, I mean, you're probably right. <laughs> you know, yeah, I, it could be that I, I, I just, maybe you have, you over time have developed better ways of dealing with it. I just like, okay, listen, I have to, 
I know that you're entirely, we're, we're talking on an emotional level and not a logical level, but I don't know how to, I don't know how to have that conversation. So I'm just going to continue pretending like we're talking about things that make sense. Yeah. And so, I mean, just so you know, like what Scrum does by promoting the values of Scrum, right? When I talk about openness, right? When I talk about the, you know, courage, um, respect for each other, um, like, these values are actually designed to put, to take the, to set up an environment where you can have these logical discussions and they actually land instead of being overtaken by emotion. And I don't think a lot of people give enough thought or credence to it, but we need to be hiring based on values. I need to hire people that have respect for other people and their knowledge so that you know, when you're on the team, you can actually bring up the fact that, hey, this decision should be decided this way on these criteria and you're using some other criteria. So don't do that, right? If you have respect for other people, then you can actually hear that message and you change your decision-making based on that instead of being ruled by passion. It's just something that's overlooked. Mm -hmm. So these are just uh, huge points to ponder. Yeah, they're, they're, they're things, yeah, we need to, uh-huh, okay. So I guess next time we could discuss um, how to not the second topic. in your head. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I think we're, uh, we're running out of time. We won't be discussing this time, but so next yeah, time we'll get that one. Yeah, we wouldn't want, we, you know, keep this in your head and then we'll just, we'll, we'll tell you how to get it out. <laughs> <laughs> Until then, folks. Yes. We'll sign Until off. Then, yeah, signing off. Okay.